I'm Joel Parker. And I'm Brianna Draxler. This is How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. Today is Tuesday, November 29th, 2011. Coming up, making mountains out of molehills, or rather making islands out of volcanoes. And we talk with an author and scientist about math for life. How a little math can go a long way in understanding the news and making decisions in your life, in your community, and in Congress. We begin with a look at some of the recent news in science. The 17th Conference of the Parties to the UN Convention on Climate Change kicked off Monday. Nearly 200 representatives from governments and organizations around the world will try to come to an agreement about how to deal with climate change. The COP17 website welcomes delegates to the, quote, sunny city of Durban, South Africa. But the weather in Durban has been anything but sunny as of late. Heavy rain Sunday caused floods that killed 18... caused floods that killed eight people and destroyed over 700 homes in the area. The South Africa Weather Bureau reported two and a half inches of rain Sunday, on top of the eight inches that have already fallen this month, twice November's average. Brad Johnson, editor of Think Progress Green, was quick to make the link between Durban's heavy rains and climate change. In an article Monday, he said the killer floods highlight the threat of global warming pollution and are part of a long-term trend related to climate change. But the International Panel on Climate Change says the connection is not so clear. Earlier this month, the IPCC published a report on extreme weather events. It said there is limited to medium evidence that climate is driving the observed changes in the magnitude and frequency of floods on a regional scale. On the global scale, confidence and agreement on the evidence is even lower. Rains are predicted to continue this week in Durban. This will delay COP17's beach activities, but hopefully not their progress toward a global climate change agreement. One of the biggest hurdles to cleaner energy is not better wind generators or even better solar panels, but better batteries. We need to be able to store energy efficiently to use it most effectively. So having power when the sun is shining or when the wind is blowing is not enough. We need to be able to store that energy for those off periods of calm and clouds. And researchers of materials science and engineering at Stanford University may have a breakthrough to send us on our way. The researchers don't have a new battery yet, but they do have a critical part, a new electrode. This electrode is cheap, fast, and extremely durable. In lab tests, it survived 40,000 cycles of charging and discharging. That's about 100 times better than the average lithium-ion battery, which currently is the long-life battery of choice. What's more... The electrode is cheap to produce and can be produced in large volumes. So what is the secret? Well, it employs crystalline nanoparticles of a copper compound called hexacinoferrate. These crystals have an open framework that allows ions, which are positively and negatively charged atoms and molecules, to easily travel through without doing damage, as long as the ions are the right size. Well, it turns out that hydrated potassium ions are a good fit. This electrode will serve as the battery's high-voltage cathode. The next part of the puzzle is finding a material for its partner, the low-voltage anode. Then, hopefully, 
We can efficiently save the sun's energy for a rainy day, the wind's energy for those periods of calm, and take a leap toward greener power. You're listening to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Brianna Draxler. In discussions about the rise of sea level as a result of global warming, we hear a lot about the loss of land in low-lying coastal areas. But there's one case where land is being gained. We have recently been witnessing the birth of a new island near El Hierro, the farthest southwest of the Canary Islands. John Stewart from BBC's Science in Action has this report. As the headline in one Spanish newspaper put it, the monster rises out of the water. The article was about a new landmass that many people think is appearing out of the sea just off the Canary Islands. The possible formation is certainly dramatic. Over the last few months, an underwater volcano has been extremely active, and recently fountains of water up to 20 metres high have been seen shooting out of the Atlantic Ocean. In the last few days, scientists have seen that another vent may have started to erupt, and they're trying to confirm that now. Well, Dr. Joe Gotsman, a volcanologist from the University of Bristol in the UK, has been following what's happening. So just how serious is the situation? I think we're now at about a number of 11,600 earthquakes or so, roughly. And uh, some of these earthquakes, particularly over the last three to four weeks, they've actually most of them been felt. So there were quite a few, um, well, earthquakes above a magnitude three that the local population felt. The eruptions are happening just south of El Hierro, the smallest of the Canary Islands. Boiling water and fumes coming out of the sea have been reported. And early statements say that a new island was forming before our eyes, but they turned out to be floating lava rocks. But according to Joe Gotsman, it is quite likely that an island could form and emerge from under the sea. This is the way those islands form. This is the way these islands continue to grow. You need to remember that El Hierro is the youngest of all the Canarian islands. I mean, we're looking at uh, barely 1.5, maybe 2 million years of surface activity there. Compare that to other islands that have seen 20 million years' worth of volcanic activity at the surface. This is simply uh, a geology at work, and we, we're witnesses to, to see this, uh, this, this inner workings of the Earth. So it does seem like we're in a, a quieter period right now, but we've also seen this uh, heightened activity and it's like it's going through cycles so what's actually happening in the earth to cause this change in activity okay what we need to consider is that the um, canary islands they formed in a particular pattern a particular pattern in terms of the magmatism and also how volcanic activity works there so it is for example believed that the canary islands they sit on top of a what we call a hot spot there's some hot material from the earth's interior is approaching the, 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 the surface, the ocean surface, and erupts to form those islands. Now, the, for the particular case that we're experiencing now, the seismic data seems to indicate that material has been ponding at about maybe 18, 19, or 20 kilometers depth. So these are where the, the earthquake centers are located at the moment, and then magma rises from about that depth to erupt at the surface. 
El Hierro has a population of 10,000, and some people were evacuated from the island, but they've since returned when the volcanic activity reduced. Joe Gotsman from the University of Bristol there. Thanks to John Stewart from BBC's Science in Action for that report. Recent news reports from Coast Guards in the UK and in Spain, Coast Guards that deal with incidents in the Atlantic, indicate that the new island has indeed now appeared. They're issuing a shipping navigation warning for an area of four nautical miles around this island because, for those of us who are familiar with Gilligan's Island and Swiss Family Robinson, we know the dangers of uncharted islands. You can't take three from two, two is less than three, so you look at the four in the tens place. Now that's really four tens, so you make it three tens, regroup, and you change a ten to ten ones, and you add them to the two and get twelve, and you take away three, that's nine. Is that clear? Now instead of four in the tens place, you've got three, because you added one, that is to say ten to the two, but you can't take seven from three, so you look in the hundreds place. From the three, you then use one to make ten ones, and you know why four plus minus one plus ten is fourteen minus one, because addition is commutative, right? And so you got thirteen tens, and you take away seven, and that leaves five. Well, six, actually, but... <laughs> The idea is the important thing. <laughs> now go back to the hundreds place. You're left with two and you take away one from two. You are listening to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Joel Parker. For many people, the lyrics of that Tom Lehrer song make perfect sense. And for others, it is just more gobbledygook like what they wrestled with in their math class at school. One often hears people state, I'm not good at math, or that they don't like math because they don't think it has any relevance to their day-to-day -day life, other than maybe to balance their checkbook. However, both of those myths are addressed rather head-on in a new book titled Math for Life, Crucial Ideas You Didn't Learn in School. The author of that book is Dr. Jeffrey Bennett, an astrophysicist and educator. He has written several textbooks and books for the general public, including the popular series of children's books, Max Goes to the Moon, Max Goes to Mars, and Max Goes to Jupiter. And he has another children's book out now called The Wizard Who Saved the World. We're happy to have Jeff back on our show to talk about the importance of math to how we make decisions in our lives and about being a wizard. Welcome to the show, Jeff. Thank you very much. It's great to be back here again. So this book, Math for Life, what was the motivation of this book? Well, the story actually goes back uh, quite a ways for me here. If you look back about 20 years ago when CU was a leader in trying to come up with what should we teach um, for math for our college students. And one of my favorite stories is that uh, I was at a talk one time, and the way that most college students fulfill their math requirement is by taking college algebra. And an algebra author was there, and someone said to him, what's the difference between high school algebra and college algebra? And he answered, oh, well, that's easy. In college algebra, we teach them all the material that we taught them in high school algebra, only this time we teach it to them louder. <laughs> and the point was that for people who aren't going to be continuing in math, there's got to be something that's more important and a better use of their time than just teaching them the same things that they may have struggled with before. So at CU, we started this program called Quantitative Reasoning, where we tried to teach students about the math that will really make a difference in your life. So the origin of this Math for Life book goes back to when I started teaching that college course more than 20 years ago, and now I wanted to do something for the public. And, and the course was a quantitative reasoning course. 
So was it kind of math without math or something like that? <laughs> you know, in, in a sense, it's almost like math without the equations. And, you know, one of my favorite quotes that I use actually in chapter one, I always start the book each chapter with some quotes is from Stephen Hawking, who said, equations are the boring part of mathematics. <laughs> and I think many people, the way we teach math in school, grow up thinking that mathematics is equations. But that's sort of like saying that uh, architecture is hammers and nails. The fact is you need the hammers and nails to build the house, but the design process, the thinking process is all creative and interesting and amazing. And the same is true in math. The equations are just the tools that we use when we're calculating, but the thinking that we need for mathematics is something that everyone can do and everyone needs to do. So it's kind of like we both have run across this. People think astronomers spend their time lying on the back, looking up at the stars and, and discovering new uh, constellations or something like that. Um, they probably think mathematicians just sit there and add numbers together, but there's a lot more involved in math than running the crank, basically. It's understanding what's going on. Well, that's right. And to take a very simple example, let's think about the uh, mortgage crisis issues and so on. You know, these days, you can calculate your in interest payments without doing any calculations because there's all these online tools that do all the calculations for you. And so what you need to be able to do is not so much the calculations, but to understand what they mean. So when it spits out, here's your mortgage payment, you can look at your own finances and say, gosh, can I afford this or not? And we know that the vast majority of people who bought houses over the past decade did not do that thinking part. And that's why we got into the mess. So numbers are just something written on a piece of paper. There's not the number sense, kind of understanding what the number means, and even relative magnitudes of numbers. One of the quotes I think you have in the book is a billion here, a billion there, and pretty soon you're talking real money. Right. Now, Famous quote. <laughs> that, that is real money for most people. But in some contexts, that quote actually makes sense. That's right. And I go through a number of examples on that. Uh, one of my favorites is uh, you look a couple years ago when Goldman Sachs had a $23 billion bonus pool. <laughs> and you start to think of what other uses might they have put that $23 billion to. I, I could think of a few, you know. Well, just, you know, e even to take some that involve keeping the money within the corporation and making even more money for the future, that was more than NASA's entire budget. They could run the space program. They could have commercial space. They could be the first ones to mine the moon. But instead, they just handed the money out as bonuses. Well, there are some people who argue that those were bonuses well spent. And that's fine. You can make that argument, but the part that I think is important is to understand the choices. And I think I try not to tell people what the answers should be in this book, but I think that if we understand the choices, okay, you could have done it this way or you could have done it that way, then you can make a better decision. Speaking of relative magnitudes of numbers and throwing billions of dollars around, KGNU has had its recent pledge drive, and we're still a little short of our goal, just a wee bit. It's much less than a billion here, a billion there. And to help us along that way, Jeff kindly brought in some copies of his books, both the Math for Life book and also the, uh, the Wizard Who Saved the World. And we have also a Spanish copy, I believe, of the Wizard Who Saved the World book as well. So we have a few copies of those books as premiums for first callers to pledge in either a renewed 
or new KGU membership at the $40 level. If you pledge in at the $40 level, you get your choice of one of the books. If you pledge at a $60 level, you get both books. Such a deal. So if you want one or both of those books, call in now at 303-449-4885. And please indicate if you want the Spanish version of the Wizard book. So thank you for bringing in those books, Jeff. Oh, you're very welcome. Thank uh, you. I'm sure they'll actually get a good read here before they get sent out the door. So you, you mentioned at the beginning of each chapter you have quotes. Uh, you also, at the beginning of each chapter, have a quiz, a little quiz that kind of leads into the topic for that chapter, whether it's about uh, statistics or managing your money or taxes or things like that. And some of the quizzes are good. Some of them are very not intuitive, uh, what the answers are. And I guess part of the point that comes across in the book, at least when I was looking at it, was your common sense your sense of what you used, truthiness, um, isn't always the right answer. That's right. And common sense might say, hey, everybody else is buying, buying houses. I should buy one too. But when you actually start to look at, hey, the prices are starting to go really high and how are people going to afford that, you might come to a different answer. And so I think that is the case with just about everything. You don't need to do a lot of equations. You don't need to uh, turn the crank on the mathematics, but what you do need to do is to think about what these things mean, and that's the part that our schools have not done a very good job of teaching us. That personal sense of being able to make decisions based on the numbers you're working with, whether the example you give, it's a mortgage, or you also, you dive right into politics in this book, talking about the polarization of politics and the debt and things like that. Even if it's not our household budget, it's our country budget and being able to understand what's going on with that and what the debt really means. Have you had any comments about your book being partisan one way or the other since you dive into politics there? Uh, no, I haven't because, again, I think I try not to tell you what I think the answer should be. But if I tell you what the issues are and help you understand the mathematical parts behind it, when you think about the debt and the deficit, the recent super committee and so on, the issues are very easy to understand. It doesn't take much to see that Social Security and Medicare are on paths that cannot possibly be sustained. It would break mathematical laws to stay on these paths. Congress will try, um, though. <laughs> they may try, <laughs> yes. It doesn't take much to see that even if you cut back on those things, you can't solve the deficit problem just that way. You have to have other ways of addressing it as well. You look at the total discretionary spending and you see that even if you zeroed it out, you'd still have a big deficit. So that tells you you've got to think about the revenue side also. None of this is magic. All the different bipartisan commissions come to the same conclusions. But then you can draw your own conclusions as to why isn't Congress actually doing anything. Right. If the math is so cut and dried and there's no magic in it, why isn't it obvious? Well, you know, you mentioned I have a chapter on political polarization. And one thing that I think a lot of people don't realize is that a lot of this polarization actually comes from the process of redistricting that's going on around the country right now. And you take a a hypothetical state that's 50% Democrat and 50% Republican, and they have eight representatives, and you ask how many 
Republicans and how many Democrats will you have? Well, the answer is because of the way redistricting is done, if one party has control, they can actually make it so that they get seven out of the eight seats, hmm. even though the electorate is a 50-50 split. And once you understand that and how it works, so I explain that, how the gerrymandering works, then you can start to see, okay, here's the problem and start to think about what we might do about it. And you also mentioned that both sides of an argument can be mathematically correct, but use numbers to their advantage, whether if they're talking about an average, whether it's the, the mean, the median, or the mode, or what have you, or how they cherry-pick statistics. That's right. There's all sorts of really interesting things that you can, can do with those types of things. Mean and median are two different measures of average. They're both legitimate measures of average, but they're not always the same. And so you'll see cases, you know, the union versus the corporation, where the corporation will use the uh, mean because it's higher, and the union will use the medium because it's lower. And then they can both be arguing that we're underpaid, we're overpaid. Right. They can both say the average is they can Blank. both say the average is. And unless you understand the basic difference between these two things, and it's very easy to understand. You don't have to do any algebra. You just have to think about it a little bit, and that's why I explain those kinds of things in the book. But that's why one side could say the average is X. The other will say the average is Y. They're two different numbers, but they're actually both, both legitimate. legitimate. Speaking of the magic of math, just talk a little bit about your other book, the children's book, uh, The Wizard. The Wizard Who Saved the World. This also uh, covers some of, the, some of the same topics, you know, kind of common sense things about uh, energy use and the, the energy budget, how to be efficient, and uh, global climate change. Uh, you dive into that topic fairly readily in both books. But the, the Wizard Who Saved the World really is about climate change. That's right. The Wizard Who Saved the World is my children's book I've wanted to do for a long time that really focuses on trying to help people understand climate change, global warming, and what the issues are behind it. And I figured if I could do it at a level that would help kids understand it, it might help their parents and educators as well. Well, this is a great book because it's not only just a book, a storybook for kids that has a, you know, a simple storyline, but then it has these little boxes for kind of more in-depth comments so you That's right. I explain the science behind the story and the sides of the pages. So the idea is that even very young kids, preschool, kindergarten, can enjoy the story and the artwork. And then as you get older, you can read what I call these big kid boxes on the sides of the pages and actually understand the real hard science that's behind all of these ideas. Well, I appreciate you coming in, Jeff, to talk about your books. Just a reminder for those listening, we have those books available as premiums for anyone who wants to pledge or renew their membership at the $40 level for one book or the $60 level for both. Call 303-449-4885 to get the last copies of those books. Uh, that was Dr. Jeffrey Bennett, scientist, educator, and author of the new books Math for Life and The Wizard Who Saved the World. Thank you very much for coming Thanks in, Thanks very Jeff. much. And those are available on Amazon right now. And you can also get them by going to my website, jeffreybennett.com. Great. Thank you very much, Jeff. Thank you. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Tom McKinnon. This week's show was engineered and produced by Joel Parker, with additional contributions from Beth Bartell. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from Genesis and Tom Lehrer. 
Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and to subscribe to our podcast. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Brianna Draxler. And I'm Joel Parker. You are listening to KGNU, Boulder, Denver, 88.5 FM, 1390 AM.